everybody. Okay, one quick announcement. One quick announcement. Guess what I'm gonna tell you about? That's right, snacks. If you have ever benefited from a snack in your whole life, you should consider signing up to help other people benefit from snacks. It's very exciting. So here's the deal, if you have never, it, we have people signed up, at least one person, but those people might want a friend. It's just better to serve together. And next week, we have no one signed up. So this is gonna be sitting up there, or maybe Andrea will hound you. I don't know how it's gonna work. Um, but if you sign up, if you have never done it before, come at 545, we'll show you the ropes, you'll get your stuff done. Have time to sit around and say hi to people. Finish your Bible study if you didn't finish. And then um, if you've already done it before, just come at six, set this stuff out. It's not a big deal, but it is a big deal for us to not have to do it. So we would 100% appreciate that. There it is. Um, also, I just think that y'all should know this, that um, a, a few weeks ago when we started Flourish, I don't normally remember my dreams, but I had a dream the morning that we, um, the morning that the Tuesday morning floor started. We had so many women coming that we had to move to a different venue. We didn't have a room in the church big enough, but Ashley Fenters, if you know Ashley, she somehow had this new house with this giant thing out back that would hold like 300 women. She was like, I mean, I don't know, we're just doing what, you know, what God wants us to do with it. And I was like, but Ashley, where will everybody park? And then she goes, oh, Jenny Shropshire's got it. So I go outside and Jenny Shropshire has a little wheelie theme, like what you use to line baseball fields. And she's zipping through. So if you've ever wondered if people are thinking and praying about Flourish, about your Bible studies, we are. I wake up at night thinking about you all and dreaming about how to serve the people of Flourish. So, um, okay, here's what we're going to do. I actually don't even have to sit down tonight. I'm going to teach tonight. I'm very excited. Um, and so let me give you kind of a quick idea of what we're going to do. We're going to do an overview, kind of a review, and then I'm gonna give you, um, we're gonna zip through the first, you're good, you're good. We're gonna zip through the first half of chapter four, and then we're gonna hang out for a while at the end of chapter four, and then I have three parting gifts for you at the end. I have a video, I have a quote, and I have a handout, that's what we're gonna do. So, first of all, let's look at our you probably can't see that very well, but I'm going to read it. Um, okay, so this is our review. This is like all of Esther, yes, um, all of Esther, uh, one, two, three, in like 20 seconds. Xerxes is king. Vashti is queen. Vashti is no longer queen. Esther becomes queen. Mordecai becomes a hero. Haman, though, is the one who gets promoted. Mordecai, not impressed. Haman uses his power for evil, and that's where we stopped last week. And so this week, we're going to look at what does it look like for Esther to become a woman of influence, just like the cover of our Bible studies, right? What does it mean for her to have a life of influence? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into chapter four for this week. God, I thank you for the women in this room and the lives that they represent. I thank you for the 
um, the hours of study of your word. And I pray that tonight, Lord, we would, um, things would click. We would understand what you are telling us, that we would understand what you, um, what you want for us, and that we would be um, women of influence. Thank you for putting us each in a position um, specifically for each of us, and I pray that you would um, help us to see your truth tonight. Amen. Okay. So, I think I just have a blank. Oh, yeah. Okay. Remember this from last fall. It, God is the purposeful author and hero of every story. He, invi- he defines our identity, and he invites us into a life of influence. So if that's the case, and I, are you guys not completely wildly amazed if you are uh, listening to Chris Payne on Sunday mornings, how intertwined, like we're talking about totally different parts of scripture, and yet each time a friend of ours says, this is like God speaking to us in stereo, where we hear it from multiple places. He talked about the middle places, and he talks about our influence and how God is inviting us in to a life where we are we're wildly, excitedly um, serving with him. He gives us that opportunity. So this is what we're talking tonight. We've talked about like different weeks. We'll kind of land on different, um, different of these boxes. And this week we're going to talk about influence. So, um, okay. So first, first I want to read, um, just the first part of chapter four. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, this is talking about what Haman and his horrible plan was, He tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, wept, and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. And then it goes on, and it has this... Um, back and forth dialogue between Mordecai and Esther. So Esther hears what's going on with Mordecai. Why is he wearing these mourning clothes? Why is he in burlap? Um, Which, so interesting, wearing burlap was to make sure that your outside felt as uncomfortable as your insides. That's how um, just riled up all of the people were. So he's identifying as a, as a grieving person. And Esther sends new clothes. She's like, in, she's kind of isolated in the palace. And she's like, hey, I know what'll fix this, man. Just put on some new clothes. We'll get it together. So she was not seeing the gravity yet of the situation for her or for all of the people. And so he sends back uh, a message and he says, no, you're the one who doesn't understand. And he sends her the decree and all the details and he tells the eunuch, please give her all of this information and tell her she has to plead the case before the king. Then Esther responds back, no, no, you don't understand. Can you see him going back and forth? She's like, if I do this, it's a death sentence for me. I can't go into the king because I haven't been in for 30 days. I don't have as much influence as you think I do. There is no way this can happen. And so at that point, um, 
She's in a position of influence, right? Esther's in the palace. She's been made queen. She's been elevated. She's been, she's in a position of favor. And yet it's not enough to do the task at hand. She's scared. Um, and I just keep thinking over and over, this is a middle place for Esther, right? Esther's in a place where she goes, I just don't think this is, I'm not cut out for this. This is not, this is not for me. So this is the turning point in the story. And here's, here's what happens. So this is now in Esther 4, 13 through 17. So we skip the middle. Here we go to the end. So Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. This is like a little tough love, right? Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So this is a place where Esther um, really comes into her own. It's the first time recorded in the book where she actually orders Mordecai instead of her just being passive. And so this is a point where she is clearly stepping into her influence. So what do you think? What's the bottom line? A life of influence, I don't know if y'all can see that. A life of influence begins with what? What do you think? I will show you in a minute, but who has some guesses? What does a life of influence begin with? Courage. Courage. What else? Obedience. Obedience. What else? Opportunity. Opportunity. Yeah. Anything else? These are all really good. Trust. Okay, so these are all fabulous answers. There is not really a wrong answer, except that I'm the one who gets permission to speak up front with a microphone tonight. And so this is what God has been telling me over and over this week. So this is where we're landing. That a life of influence begins with brokenness. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Aren't you so excited? And here is, so if that's the bottom line, Esther recognizes two things that, has, that it changes. This is that turning point. Things that change for her and her attitude about this horrendous situation. So one is she recognizes that she cannot do this on her own. She actually asks, she calls for the people. She tells Mordecai, call the people, tell them to fast. Tell them they've got to be in it with me. So here's what's so interesting about this, because remember that Esther is a book that does not contain the word God, and it does not contain any mention, honestly, of spiritual practices. And so while fasting is associated with prayer, she doesn't say, pray, fast, plead our case before God who loves us as a people and who has committed to setting us free. She says fast. And so there's a lot we could read between the lines, and there's a lot that we could say, mm, 
maybe she meant that. But honestly, we don't know. And that makes me kind of uncomfortable. I would, I, it would be a lot easier to stand up here and say, guys, just pray and fast and ask God and he'll give you the obedience you need. And that would be very easy, but he doesn't. It doesn't say that. So we don't know where she was spiritually. Did she remember the promises that God made to his people? Did she remember who he was and what he had called her to? Did she know her identity? It's, it's silent on that. We don't know. So here's what that makes me think. One, we know what we're supposed to believe, and I'm going to talk about that. But also, God works when we are spiritually imperfect. And that is wild. She is not, she is not an A-plus Sunday school student. She's just hanging out in the palace doing the best she can. And so this is, okay, now my English teacher hat. Ready, guys? Um, no, I keep going backwards. Okay, an illusion. If you don't remember what an illusion is, here's what it is. It's a figure of speech in which the object or circumstance from an unrelated context is referred to covertly or indirectly, and it's left to the audience to make the connection. So if I'm speaking about something and I refer to the Titanic, there's this common level of knowledge that we all know oh, she's talking about a ship that went down because we all know about the Titanic, right? And so in this case, this is, oh, this is one of those moments this week where I was like, that's wild. So hold on, hopefully you feel like it's wild too. So in our passage about Esther, um, there are a couple places that are very parallel, not necessarily in our English translations, they're loosely paralleled, but if you go back and look in the Hebrew, I don't read Hebrew, but I do read people who read Hebrew, and they, the wording is identical. And so what this means to me is that when the, we don't know what Esther believed, we don't know her motive, but what we do know is that the author of Esther really wanted us to know something about God in here. And while it's silent in the book of Esther, he says, hey, Titanic, right? Like he says, you know this. You know something else. This should ring a bell for you. You should hear these words and you should go, oh, that's what he meant. And so listen to the parallels. Can you see? Nope, you can't see it. I'm going to read it though. So this is from Joel, who was a minor prophet. Joel, it's from Joel 12, Joel 2, 12 through 14. And so if you can't see it on my bright screen, you can look it up later. So Joel was talking to the people of Israel back when they had a king and a land, and he was talking to them about a way that they needed to turn and obey God. So listen to the parallels. I have it underlined on there, but I will emphasize them. Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Same words that they used in Esther for all the people. Don't tear your clothing in your grief like Mordecai did, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not to punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. 
Don't you know when people, maybe not Esther, but when the Jewish people read Esther, don't you know they heard that line and they went, I've heard, I've heard that before. Who knows? Perhaps. Who knows? But God has called you for such a time as this. And he's calling, and what is he calling us to? He's saying, I don't care about your ashes and your torn burlap clothes. He's saying, I need your broken heart. And that to me made Esther, this book where God is silent, it made him shout. Isn't that amazing? We don't know what Esther's motive was, but we do know what our motive should be. That is very clear. And what we know is that we cannot do it on our own. We need community and we need a savior. We need a rescuer. We need someone to come who, is, who has more influence than the queen and help us to get through. The second thing that Esther recognizes, one, that she can't do it on her own, and secondly, she recognizes that she cannot control the results. And who loves, who can say amen with me on that? This is like the worst thing. I wrote this and was like, dang, I do not even want to have to say that. Ladies, we can't control the results. And so as Esther looks at what Mordecai is asking her to do, she agrees to move forward with this enormous risk. And as Mordecai pointed out, you're kind of, you're kind of dead either way. Like they find out you're, you're Jewish and you're dead. You don't find out and we, you, they, it's just going to be bad, really bad. And so um, she will act. She will move forward. And she says, if I perish, I perish. If there is not a more open-handed response to, it is, it is obedience. Again, we don't know if she's being obedient to God or just like, okay, I'm in this place. Here I go. But what a humble place she's at. This is Esther in a middle place where the way forward looks really, really dark and the way back looks really, really dark. And there she is in the middle. There is, there is not a good, it does not look good. Um, Psalm 51, 17 says this. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. So again, Esther is not... We should all be like Esther, right? And so when I, if I was saying this uh, a few weeks ago, I'd have been like, okay, what does that mean? Let's be courageous. Let's be brave. Let's be obedient. And now I'm like, oh, man, it is this hard, heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching place that she's at. And yes, she has honor and influence, but it's in a really hard place, guys. Again, we don't know what Esther's motive was, but we see this movement toward humility. We see this movement toward giving up on her self-sufficiency. And that's a heart that God wants to use and he's able to honor. So the bottom line is this, right? 
Um, if a life of influence starts with brokenness, why brokenness? Why not strength? Again, why not honor? Why not integrity and courage and all the other things that sound like, that would be kind of fun to practice. I think it starts with accepting the reality like Esther saw, right? She was able to say, okay, this is this in reality, this is kind of an impossible situation. And I on my own am no match for what I'm facing. Um, so here, here's what I want to do. So I've said brokenness, right? Like we're talking about brokenness. And I have three, like I said, I have three gifts for you. Three gifts. Um, the first is a video. And I want us to look at it because I think what it did for me this week is give me an idea of how there is beauty in brokenness. Um, and then we'll talk about the, then we'll talk more about the not so super fun part of that. But so first is a video. So see what, hopefully we can hear it. And if not, Okay, so here's what I'm gonna tell you about. I'm gonna tell you about the video we're in. But I do have a picture. Uh, does anybody know what this is called? Kintsugi, yes. And so the video, the video was much more eloquent than me, but here we go. Um, Kintsugi is a Japanese art form, and here's what it is. It began as this, um, a tea bowl um, that was it work, Andrea? Huh? Let's try one more time. No, it's not coming up. It's okay. It's okay. It's good. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll send it to you. So here's the idea that a broken vessel is not a wasted vessel. The broken bowl does not get thrown away, it gets reused. And not only does it get reused, it gets mended with very expensive gold. It gets put back together in a way that forms not just a new bowl, it forms a bowl that's art. A bowl that's beautiful and more valuable than it was to begin with. And when I think about Esther and her brokenness of saying, I can't do this on my own, I don't know what the results will say. She no longer says, I'm holding it all together. She's not saying, it's okay guys, don't mind the cracks, don't look at the cracks. She's saying, here I am in pieces. It is not together. And yet there is a master artist who can put those pieces back together in a way that gives us more beauty and more value than ever before. And the video is gonna be great, guys, but you know, hey, that's okay. It just reminds me that my influence, when I think of my influence as not having cracks and flaws, I'm reminded that the way Jesus works is through those very things because it's not about me being perfect and put together. My next gift for you this is actually written, so I can't, I can't mess it up, um, is a quote, and this is from a book by um, 
Tish Harrison Warren called Prayer in the Night. And um, it's interesting. There are a couple things that I that I loved about this. One is that it just talks about ashes and it reminds me of Mordecai in his ashes. And it talks about how our, the idea of us staying, trying to keep all together. So I'm gonna read for a minute. One Ash Wednesday, a decade ago, I knelt at a rail as my priest smeared a black cross on each forehead. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return, he intoned, and marked the preteen girl kneeling next to me. Then I heard her turn to her mom and whisper, does my ash look all right? <laughs> Still kneeling, I started to laugh because, of course, it didn't look all right. She had a large black smudge in the middle of her forehead. There is no way for that to look all right. But I also laughed because I heard my own heart in her question. I know I'm limited. I know I'm dust. I bear vulnerability, weariness, and mortality, sin, selfishness, and struggle. But I'm still a 10-year-old girl with a big black smudge on my face hoping to somehow pass as acceptably cool. I want you to know, I want you to know that I look okay. I want to know I look okay. To be clear, I don't mean that God is glorified in our fashionable weakness. It's a trend now to meticulously display per imperfection online. Messiness can be a part of our personal brand. We don't like people who seem too put together, so many Christian leaders are sure to go out of their way to show us how messy they are. Our truest weakness will never be a selling point. If sharing our imperfections makes us seem cooler and more approachable, then it's not true weakness. The things that are really wrong with us are embarrassing and uncomfortable. And sharing this part of ourselves with our community makes us more whole, but it will never, ever help our brand. We are truly a mess, and not in a cute way, but in a sad and often humiliating way. The ashes on our forehead do not look good. The last thing I want to give you is this, um, because as I was looking at this and kind of just sitting in the idea of brokenness all week and looking at where is it that I want to feel more put together or make people think I'm more put together or make myself think I'm more put together, where is it where I want to control the outcome? Where is it where I want to not necessarily need other people? And as I sat there looking at this stuff, I was reminded of something from a really, really long time ago. And um, it's actually from a book, but I heard um, Nancy Lee DeMoss speak in um, 1995. Uh, many of you were not born. That's okay. It was a long time ago. And here is the idea of what she talked about. And she had she ended up coming out with a book later. And this list was significant to me for this reason. I think if we talk about brokenness, like the like that quote said, like it's easy to say, oh yes, we're all broken. But what does that really, really mean? What did it mean for Esther? Because on so on on this list, there's two sides. One is the proud, unbroken spirit, and the other side is a broken spirit. And so what is it that Jesus can do with our lives when we stop trying to hold all the pieces together and let him use his art 
to put us together in a better way. And so as I look at these things again, Esther, we don't know where she was at, but I can see her heart moving. We can see from her actions that she was moving toward a broken, uh, she was a broken woman. She was not perfect, even though she had on the outside what seemed to be great. She yielded her rights instead of claiming her rights. She, um, she was humbled by what she didn't know. She didn't say, I'm confident I can get this job done. Esther was a person who was moving toward brokenness and away from pride. And um, so this is, this, this is just for your own benefit. Aren't you so glad I gave you this? You can um, look at this. My, how I've been using it this week is just praying through it and saying, God, reveal to me where are places where I feel stuck. Where are places where I feel mm, like I may be trying to do things on my own, where I'm not yielding to you because he wants to put us together like this beautiful pottery, and he can't do that if we're pretending to all be together. I can't wait for, uh, Esther has been like this, um, it's like I can't wait for the next episode to get out. It feels like I want to kind of binge watch the whole thing. And so next week, as we look at her at her identity and her um, influence unfold, my prayer is that we would continue to see this and see ourselves as like, what is God calling me to? What's he calling me to let go of? And what's he calling me to embrace? Where is he asking me to join him? So let me pray for us, and then you can go to your groups. God, I pray um, that I would recognize my own brokenness. I pray that I would see you and your hand in everything around me and that I would, I would not cling to my pride. I would not cling to my foolishness that says I can keep things together. I pray that you would help me to ungrasp my hands around things that I want to control. And Lord, like Esther, that you would take our broken pieces and use us in a way that we could never have expected. In Jesus' name, amen.